0: Tonight on NBC.
1: Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired.
0: Based on an inspiring true story.
1: Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated.
0: One doctor will break every
1: rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need.
0: To inspire a revolution.
1: Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors. Again.
0: From the network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam. Tonight on NBC.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light.
0: Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good.
3: From the Podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter-revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent hundred-course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food. And on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. The audience had never seen anything like it. The woman on stage hovered in the air, impossibly balanced on the very tips of her toes. Sure, most of the audience had seen vaudeville, even a few traveling plays down from London that had toured Sydney or Melbourne, even Perth. But this, this was different. That woman on stage, Anna Pavlova, was what audiences had fallen in love with from Moscow's Imperial Mariinsky Theatre to New York's Metropolitan Opera House to London's Covent Garden. And there was no question, Anna Pavlova was a star, an international celebrity. Hers was a name people recognized from India to Argentina to Japan. She was what people called the first truly famous prima ballerina a woman who introduced the world to dancing swans, firebirds, sleeping beauties. And for a time, she was Russia's brand ambassador, cementing the prestige of Russian ballet for at least a hundred years, a reputation that would outlast revolutions, communism, and cold wars.
4: Was responsible for popularizing ballet, and not only taking it across the states like Fanny Elssler did, but she took ballet to places where nobody had ever seen ballet before. She went
0: to South America. She went to India. She went to
3: and finally, in 1926, here she was in Sydney, dancing her world-famous routine of the Dying Swan at His Majesty's Theatre. And she did it all again one month later in New Zealand. It had taken over a decade to woo Pavlova to Australia and New Zealand. Even without seeing her in person, the Sydney and Melbourne papers had fallen in love with Anna since her debut on the London stage. In 1911, the Sydney Morning Herald had fawned over London reports of her dancing. Pavlova does not perform dances, the Sydney paper insisted. She is herself a dance. And while she is there, the stage is an enchantment. London vaudeville theater land generally is immeasurably a more alluring place by reason of her. And so began a decade of steady appeal, pleading with the famous ballerina to make the long boat voyage south to perform in the theaters of Wellington and Melbourne and Adelaide but no one had really expected it for it to take, well, this long. Already 30 years old in 1911, an age considered to be knocking at the door of retirement for many dancers, Pavlova spent the next decade on tour, traveling to India, Canada, the United States, France, England, Japan, and more. Anna spent her life on ocean liners, Traveling from one international stage to the next, pushing the very limits of her body. But how could she stop? At every theater, there was another standing ovation waiting for her. Another country yearning to see in person what they had only read about in the papers. Eager to see the pride of Russia hover in the air on point. But Australia and New Zealand would have to wait to see Anna's swan her sleeping beauty, her firebird. Polite excuses were made at first. Anna was simply too busy this season to make the journey down south. Perhaps next year. But one year stretched to two, which stretched to five, which finally stretched to more than ten. But Anna's public had been patient. The local papers had faithfully detailed every moment of Anna's international tours, from her world-renowned performances of the Dying Swan, to her Salome, to her Fairy Queen. Australians had imagined her dancing for over a decade. And now, finally in the spring of 1926, she would finally set her dainty point shoe on Australian soil and dance. Now I could tell you about Anna's grand tour of Australia and New Zealand. Stunning crowds again and again each night for six weeks straight. How her performances would quickly become the stuff of legend. How people would eagerly proclaim how they got to see the great Pavlova live. How Pavlova was so overwhelmed by her Australian fan base, she returned to the country just three years later, in 1929, at the even older age of 48. How cynics, then, were already whispering that she was looking unwell. How the years of endless travel and tours were finally catching up with her. And I could tell you finally how, in 1931, Australia, along with the rest of the world, was shocked when the great Anna Pavlova died. Suddenly, after catching pneumonia while on tour in the Netherlands, few had realized how old she was, nearly 50, a fact disguised by her elegant swan costumes and her dancer's body. The sudden loss of the world's greatest ballerina plunged the arts world into mourning, making Pavlova an instant legend. The years following Pavlova's death inspired tributes to the fallen ballerina all over the world. In London, England, the Victoria Theatre is still graced with a golden statue of her, On point on its rooftop. In 1935, one of the first celebrity documentary films showed footage of Anna at her London home, feeding her beloved swans. But Pavlova's most enduring legacy ironically doesn't have anything to do with dancing, or even the stage at all. It's in the kitchen.
2: Well, I'd never encountered the pavlova before coming down here, which was kind of why it was this sort of Aussie experience for Christmas or Australia Day or something like that. Somebody would always have a pavlova that was presented. And it was sort of through that that I kind of became aware of this being a particularly Australian um, dessert. My name is Diana Jeske. Um I moved to Melbourne about seven years ago. Oh my gosh, seven years ago. And
3: Diana's not kidding. While England may claim the mince pie or the plum pudding... While America may claim it's stereotypical apple pie, if you're in the festive spirit down in Australia, nothing can match a pavlova. From supermarket pre-made meringues to YouTube instructional videos, the pavlova is everywhere. And then, you know, subsequently you have
2: things like cooking reality TV shows down here, and it's always kind of features as a sort of item that contestants sort of have to make um, because it's particularly and uniquely Australian.
0: It's the reinvention test. Today's nightbot theme it's classic desserts. Come on, Coates.
4: Pavlova. Oh.
3: <laughs>
4: Pavlova.
3: The pavlova was just among the recent challenges to test the contestants of the enormously popular show MasterChef Australia. But unless you're a baker, or from Australia or New Zealand, you may not have heard of the dessert which takes its name from an early 20th century ballet dancer. But we'll get to that whole name thing and its origins in a minute. First, let's let Diana explain this classic dessert. In order to be a pav,
2: I mean, certainly you have to have the sort of baked meringue base. um, And then on top of that has to sit some cream of some sort, usually generally kind of whipped, but not like overly whipped. um, You know, sort of whipped kind of cream that sits on top. And then on top of that will be some kind of fruit topping of some sort.
3: Simple enough, right? But how did meringue, fruit and whipped cream, methods and ingredients that had been in use long before Anna took to the stage in the early 20th century, end up so permanently associated with her name? And why does it have pride of place on so many Australian and New Zealander holiday tables? To dig into the history of this ballerina-inspired dessert, let's go to the woman who literally wrote the book on the pavlova, Professor Helen Leach, author of The Pavlova Story, A Slice of New Zealand's Culinary History. And as she's discovered, this time-honored dessert started out as something altogether different. Born out of a marketing ploy by the Davis Gelatin Company. Kind of like the Jello of Australia and New Zealand. Now, some bright young thing in the marketing department clearly wanted to horn in on Anna's tour of Australia and New Zealand back in 1926. After all, the Australian and New Zealand public were going crazy for everything pavlova that year. Surely slapping her name on a jello recipe could help boost sales a bit.
4: The jelly is simply celebrity naming. The name is given by the equivalent of uh, the North American Big Jello Company. And we have Davis Gelatine in New Zealand and Australia. And so they just jumped on the bandwagon and decided that, you know, it would be a case of celebrity naming. It would be, you know, the Pavlova uh, jelly, or just Pavlova by itself, without even calling it a jelly.
3: Recipes for this original Pavlova, I like to think of it as the er Ur-Pavlova, Still can be found in the 1926 edition of the Dainty Davis Dishes Recipe Book, a cookbook produced by, you guessed it, the Davis Gelatin Corporation. Now, this recipe is clearly one that hails from those bygone days where multicolored jelly desserts were all the rage. And by the way, that's jello to everyone in North America. These colorful desserts were more or less the rainbow cakes of their day using as many colors as possible for aesthetics, rather than for taste. Now, the original recipe asked you to make four layers of different colored jellies or jellos, all with name brand Davis Gelatin, of course, including one layer of milk jello. That's right, milk jello. In between fruitier flavors, like orange and lime. Delicious-sounding, right? Apart from the history of multicolored desserts, which is a topic for another day, the question remains why was any dessert, let alone this ribbon jello concoction, named after a ballerina, albeit one of the most famous in the world? It's not exactly a tactic that's often used today. We don't see Justin Bieber ice cream or Drake spaghetti when musicians go on tour these days. But at the time, Recipes named after popular singers or artists were all the rage.
4: All the names represent the application of the name of someone who is a bit like Princess Diana in her day. I mean, she's astounding to see, she's beautiful, she dances fantastically, and then she dies early. Um, Well, she died at the age of 49, but she always struck people as being much younger than that. Um, And still, it was early. That, that helped, I think, the, the, you know, the, the kudos that went with the, with the recipe.
3: Today we're used to quite a bit of celebrity branding. From cars to watches to furniture, it's easy to find a celebrity endorsing particular products on billboards or TV. And in our food-obsessed world, this easily extends to the kitchen. From Emerald Lagasse Spice Blends to Wolfgang Puck Brand Cookware any number of celebrity chefs have cemented themselves as a household name through food. But with the number of high-profile chefs around these days, it's unusual to find a food so attached to a celebrity who isn't already part of the food world. Sure, George Foreman started out as a boxer, but his decision to lend his name to Electric Grills back in the 1990s, after his retirement from the ring, has meant an entire generation has grown up associating his name more with chicken and hamburgers than his TKO count.
1: Tonight on NBC. Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired.
0: Based on an inspiring true story.
1: Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated.
0: One Doctor. We'll break every
1: rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need.
0: To inspire a revolution.
1: Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors
0: again. From the network that brings you This Is Us. New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.
2: This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light.
0: Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. This is my George Foreman family size grill that No, it is, is it it's my George Foreman griddle that cooks pancakes. No. It's my George Foreman bacon oven, and it's making. No, pizza.
1: no, no! It's
0: actually my omelet maker that makes no, delicious. No, it isn't. It's a grill. Grittles, omelet cooking. Calm bacon down, oven. guys. You're all right. It's my G5 with five removable cooking plates, so it makes all of your favorite foods, and it knocks off the fat. The George Foreman G5. It's the next grill eration.
3: George Foreman may be forever associated with grills, but how often does a food itself get celebrity branding? Especially after a star dies, tributes can come from anywhere and everywhere. Things like t-shirts, best-of albums, maybe if you're lucky a dedicated street or even a museum in the star's hometown. But food? Think about it. How often have you seen David Bowie red velvet cake? Or Prince Apple Pie? What about Michael Jackson roast chicken? The closest thing to a food-related celebrity tribute is maybe Elvis' infamous love for peanut butter and banana sandwiches. But that's about it. But once upon a time, food named after famous actresses, singers, even dancers, was the height of the fashionable pre-theater dinner scene. Before popping off to the Met or the Paris Opera House— You could dine on dishes named after the very opera singers you were about to watch on stage. And no one knew how to brand a dish like Auguste Escoffier, a man who knew the power of a name. Cooking at the Savoy Hotel in London in the 1890s, Escoffier, who would eventually become a household name himself, lured in theatergoers with Adelina Patti, poulard and Peach Melba. Both dishes he had named for famous singers who would regularly perform at the nearby Covent Garden. Without these names, well, it was just plain roast chicken and cream sauce, and some poached pears and sugar. Nothing special. But add a celebrity name to it. Well, it's the same logic that has given us the iconic Chuck's Converse All Stars or Nike's Air Jordans, even Beats by Dre. These famous examples aside, the trend of naming foods after celebrities isn't nearly as popular as it once was. Hard as the Food Network might try, it hasn't yet succeeded in getting someone's name branded as a recipe. But in the 1890s and well into the early 20th century, name-brand recipes were all the rage, and not just in Escoffier's kitchen. Think of Victoria Sponge Cake, even Fettuccine Alfredo, Arnold Palmer's, Think about Caesar salad. We're eating name-brand history almost every time we sit down for a meal. But let's get back to the pavlova. Although Davis gelatin may have been the first out of the gate with a dessert named after the famous ballerina, it seemed Anna's associations with jelly or jello were not to last. Other recipes, which also played on pavlova's name, began to pop up in community cookbooks in both Australia and New Zealand, almost at the exact same time as Davis Gelatin's ballerina marketing ploy. But instead of multicolored jello, these pavlova recipes were modified versions of the already popular meringue cakes. Baked, whipped, egg white and sugary confections that had been around for over 200 years— But it was the bakers in Australia and New Zealand who incorporated the meringue into the dessert that would hold onto the name of pavlova, replacing that ribbon jello creation once and for all. But this brings up the question that has been the bane of Aussie and kiwi dessert makers for years. Who came up with the original meringue-based pavlova recipe anyway? Who can lay claim to the invention of this holiday classic? Now, this so-called rivalry has been going on almost as long as the dessert itself has been around. And at some points, it's even gotten a little heated. When New Zealand celebrated its national museum, Te Papa, with the world's largest pavlova in 1999, appropriately called the Pavzilla, the Sydney Morning Herald, an Australian newspaper, called the spectacle a Kiwi delusion. Not to be outdone, the Wellington Herald representing the New Zealand side of things, retorted that Australians had always tried to claim the best ideas as their own. So, needless to say, it can be a touchy subject. Yeah, ah, that. That old chestnut. I think it
2: was was introduced to me as a rivalry over, as a sort of contention over who basically created the path. Like who can claim, like which country can claim to have been the first to have um, invented the Pavlova, basically, that it's not necessarily a kind of current rivalry in terms of who makes the best Pav, you know, like there being any kind of sense of, oh, well, you know, New Zealand paths are crap because they do this for some reason right like i've never ever gotten any kind of sense of that it's always been around oh well you know like new zealand claims that they invented the pav but you know we all know that australia invented the pav
3: diana and australia's claims for inventing the pav that is the pavlova mostly rest on one particular chef's story herbert saxa The chef of Perth's Hotel Esplanade in the mid-1930s claimed that he had invented the concept of the meringue-based pavlova in 1935 as a tribute to Anna's recent death, creating a dessert so airy it was, quote, as light as pavlova herself. Saxa provided this epic origin story shortly before his own death, only in 1974, and by then, the pavlova was already iconic in both Australia and New Zealand, with both countries struggling to claim the dessert as their own. Sax's claims were hard to dismiss, and suddenly to New Zealand, the pavlova hovered dangerously in Australian territory. But as Helen Leach would discover, the story was not nearly so straightforward. Helen Leach's work with community and family cookbooks dating from the 1920s has shown that New Zealander bakers were already making a merengue pavlova almost a full decade before Sachs's own desserty tribute to Anna in
4: 1935. Because, you see, it's named pavlova in New Zealand by 1929. Pavlova had been here and Australia in 1926. Now, just to be sure, uh, I've checked the latest Australian um, findings, and their first Pavlova recipe printed is 1935. However, they and we, right through the 20s, were making meringue cakes with a variety of names. So it wasn't
3: necessarily that the baked meringue itself was new. It was simply a new addition of Pavlova's name to an already popular dessert modified slightly to include the now-iconic whipped cream and fruit. But what about Herbert Saxa? Is this a case of international dessert theft, an underhanded attempt to appropriate a New Zealand invention with an Australian origin story? Calm down, conspiracy theorists. Just like any number of inventions throughout history, the conditions may simply have been perfect in the 20s and 30s to inspire similar desserts, more than a 1,000 miles apart. Think about it. Naming dishes after famous singers or artists was already an international phenomenon. And as Helen Leach has shown, meringues were nothing new in the 1920s. They were already a common dessert found all over the world, including Australia and New Zealand. And given the two countries' love for the prima ballerina, is it so surprising to find out that a meringue named pavlova might have serviced in both. And as much as Professor Leach can determine, Saxo wasn't stealing from anyone when he produced his pavlova meringue in 1935.
4: Uh, the interesting thing is that I have never matched his recipe with any of the 677 that I analyzed for to write this book on the New Zealand pavlova. I could not find an example where a New Zealand recipe trotted across the Tasman and he it up, plagiarized it, and, and uh, you know, served it under his name. He, he didn't. Um, he came up with his own recipe, and he simply did what other people were doing, was called it after someone who was you know very prominent. So it's, it, it's an independent renaming, and these are all independent renamings.
3: What Helen's research has shown, perhaps more than anything else, is how variable this iconic dessert is. Taking an established dessert, like the meringue, and putting a celebrity name on it was just as much a food trend of the 1920s and 30s as high-end cupcakes or bone broth might be in 2017. But the pavlova isn't something stuck in time. Helen's catalog of over 600 recipes for the dish over the last 100 years has shown that the pavlova has been subject to almost every other popular food trend since.
4: It's pretty much all the variants are still made, I think, except a few of the more extreme forms. Now, the, the snacks pavlova, which was a, a, a biscuit tort in America, uh, came across in the 50s. Um, that was just a really um, a brief episode. It was made 1981 onwards. And the pavlova roll, which we b- borrowed from Australia about nineteen eighty. And the uncooked, which I found first in 1959, but it has well and truly gone. It was basically a, a marshmallow. I found that one, one I didn't really want to make at all. But then you see, people explored the idea of making a um, microwave pavlova, and it can't be crisp either, really. But I'll tell you one that uh, I never thought would be possible, and that was um, the diabetic pavlova, but it does exist.
3: So from pavlova rolls to low-sugar pavlovas, the dessert's enduring popularity even led to companies in the 1980s developing a no-egg version. Invented during the height of convenience cooking, the pavlova magic, as it was called, bundled egg white substitute and cornstarch into a plastic egg, making the legendary pav available to even the most tentative home bakers. I like pavlovas, but mom rings are too tricky to make. She says you got to get all the stuff like eggs, corn flour, vinegar and vanilla essence. She says the hard bit is separating the white bit of the egg from the yolk. She hasn't heard of Pavlova magic. All you need is water and sugar. The rest is in the egg. And this is the tricky bit. I'm not allowed to use the oven. Mum!
1: All natural Pavlova magic. A perfect pair of every time. No mess, no fuss.
3: And all I used was this egg. Even now, the pavlova can be a bellwether for popular food fashions. As vegan diets become increasingly popular, eggless and creamless pavlovas have begun to pop up in recipe books and specialty cafes. And thanks to the miracles of aquafaba, which is actually just chickpea juice, even vegans can now enjoy this classic Aussie and Kiwi dessert. To satisfy our curiosity, we made a version of these chickpea meringues, just to see how they'd turn out. We'll put the results up on our website, along with some other pavlova recipes from the ages. But I'll admit, those vegan meringues were surprisingly tasty and deceptively close to the real thing. Who knows what's next for the inimitable pavlova, from 1926 ballerina branding to 2017 chickpea meringues. But it's fair to say that the century-old dessert isn't going anywhere. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson. Technical direction by Mike Port, with editing assistance by Lynn Provenche. A huge thanks to Professor Helen Leach and Diana Jeske for their help with this episode. Professor Leach's book, The Pavlova Story, as well as her many articles on this dessert, were a huge help in researching our episode. We've provided a number of links to her work on our website at www.thefeastpodcast.org along with a number of images and recipes of pavlovas over the last 100 years. Music featured today includes work by Jazar and Gerlouz, as well as clips from the Royal Ballet and MasterChef Australia. Don't miss our next episode, where we head to early modern Japan to discover the origins of competitive noodle eating. That's right, competitive noodle eating. That's next time on The Feast.
0: The Pod A Sonic Universe. Tonight on NBC.
1: Well, everyone in the cardiac surgical department, please raise your hands. Thank you. You're all fired.
0: Based on an inspiring true story.
1: Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated.
0: One doctor will break every
1: rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need
0: to inspire a revolution.
1: Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors
0: again from the network that brings you this is us
3: new amsterdam tonight on nbc